Hey, good morning, church. Good morning, everybody. Hey, before we step into God's word, the, the, the reason that Clint is on the platform is because Brandon is in Wisconsin today, has been since Friday as part of a, uh, a, a search to see if maybe the Lord has he and Crystal in uh, wanting them in a new place of ministry up in uh, Wisconsin, maybe. Uh, green and gold, going to be uh, Packers fans maybe, huh? <laughs> we do not know that, but uh, he, he's been there since Friday. He preached this morning and has more meetings and stuff today. And I just thought it would be good for us to take a moment before we enjoyed the word just to pray for, for Brandon uh, and for Crystal. Let's do that together. And Father, how we thank you for the gift of Brandon and Crystal to our church family for these seven years. And and Lord, now there's a there's a change in the wind, and you are calling them to a new role of service. And we just ask you in this moment to go before Brandon as he's meeting with this church family and with the leadership team, and they are exploring and learning about each other and, and asking questions and seeking answers. Lord, we just ask you to bring clarity to this time. And, uh, Lord, we would we will feel the loss of Brandon, but at the same time we rejoice because if you're moving him on and it's good for another church family, you've got good things planned for us in the wake of that, and we can trust you for that. So thank you for our brother and for Crystal, and we pray your blessing on them as this journey continues. We'll say thanks in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. All right, First Peter, church family, the book of First Peter, if you'll join me there in your Bible. Uh, or on your phone, or however it's working for you today, First Peter chapter 1. If you need a Bible this morning, just raise a hand. Charlie, be ready to share a copy of God's Word with you. Reach into your bulletin, pull out that little note page, because that's going to be a help today. And as you're making your way to First Peter, church family, I have a question for you. When you are alone, and you're just kind of pondering, and your thoughts take you in a in a spiritual direction, in a, in a faith direction, do you ever wonder how you will do or what you will do if your culture, your community, maybe your nation, suddenly turns hostile towards your Christian faith? Do you ever turn over questions like that, wonder what you will do if it becomes illegal to love Jesus and carry your Bible publicly and meet for worship like we're doing right now. Possibly your property would be confiscated, your, your job would be terminated, maybe slanderous mocking epitaphs would be spray-painted on your house or on your car, perhaps even imprisonment. Do you ever ponder such things and wonder how you would respond? There are Christians all over the world today who are experiencing these very things. Your faith tested, your belief in Jesus called out. Would I stand? Would I yield? Would I risk everything? Or would I duck below the radar? Just keep my head down. As we learned recently, for first century Christians in Asia Minor, there was no pondering these kinds of questions. This is exactly how it was for them. The culture had turned hostile toward anyone who was professing allegiance to Jesus. Almost overnight, it seemed, loyalty to Jesus made you an exile in your own country. 
uh, or your town or your neighborhood, a spiritual exile, desiring to live for Jesus in a culture that did not share your desire. It's tough. It's getting tougher. You could use some help. You could use some encouragement. You could use some perspective and some practical advice if you were living in first century Asia Minor. Enter the Apostle Peter, who writes this letter under the superintending hand of the Holy Spirit in order to provide just this for these first century Christians. Peter writes this letter to help these believers stand strong, endure unjust suffering, and remain faithful to Jesus in a culture that has become hostile and dangerous and unpredictable. 21 centuries later, fellow Christian, Peter's words are still precious and they are still timely in our own post-Christian culture that is working hard to throw off the biblical values that once permeated our national life. Our culture is most surely becoming less tolerant of the message of the cross, less tolerant of the God of the Bible who longs to be first in our lives but also first in our culture. Like it or not, this makes you and me, brother, sister in Jesus, spiritual exiles in our own time. And so Peter's letter is a passionate call for exiles, Christians, all Christians in all times, to live well for Jesus in a world that can be hard and intolerant, perhaps even dangerous. What will life be like for a committed Christian in America over the course of the next 30 years? What will your children experience, assuming that they embrace your faith, IBC, mom or dad? How will they remain faithful to Jesus in a time when it is likely that it would be far harder for them to follow hard after Jesus than it has been for you to follow after Jesus? Well, that's precisely why the Holy Spirit gave us Peter's letter, so that we would know how to do that, to to follow hard after Jesus in hard times. And though we're taking up verses 8 and 9 this morning, let's begin at the beginning just to remind ourselves of where we have been, starting at verse 1. A benefit to those who have not been a part of our series up to this point as well. Verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, that would be modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor in the first century, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Peter says, suffering exile for Jesus, never forget that you are suffering because the Trinity itself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, chose you for themselves. What a great way to open this letter. God wanted you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed 
in the last time. And here we have three verses that speak of, of the multifaceted beauty of our salvation in Christ. Captured in one long run-on sentence. Peter doesn't care about grammar here. He just wants to get out the incredible truths of, of salvation. God's mercy poured out. Born again. A living hope because Jesus lives. An inheritance in heaven guaranteed because God himself is standing guard over it until Jesus comes. How awesome is that? Verse 6. In all of this, you rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now here, as we we talked about last time we were together, Peter offers the first of several reasons why Christians suffer and are persecuted. And he says, these trials refine and purify our faith. Peter compares a Christian's faith to gold in the heat of a blast furnace. In the same way as the furnace heats up the gold and reveals impurities and and the goldsmith can then remove those impurities, so too, Peter says, trials heat up our faith and expose its weaknesses. God, the refiner, uses the heat of trials to make our faith more pure and more enduring. So Peter says, trials actually get your faith ready for the moment that you're going to see Jesus. When his glory is revealed to us, this this revelation moment, this revealing moment happens either when we die or when Jesus comes. Brothers and sisters, this this seeing Jesus moment at the end of verse 7 is an impossible to comprehend or even imagine moment that the vast majority of Christians who have ever lived are looking forward to seeing Jesus. Except for a tiny, tiny, tiny handful of Christians, all Christians everywhere in the world for the past 21 centuries have shared something in common. We have never seen Jesus with our eyes, with our physical eyes. He has not been revealed to us in that kind of way. We've never beheld the risen Lord Jesus with these eyes. To be a Christian is to put all of your faith and all of your eternal hope in someone that you have never met in person. You've never seen him. Does that seem a little weird? A little odd? Like, like kind of like a, a spiritual version of, of marrying someone you've never met. E-harmony for eternity. And so as Peter writes the words that your faith purified by fiery trial may be found refined and, and ready for the moment when you see Jesus, apparently that thought of seeing Jesus gives Peter cause for pause. And he says to himself perhaps, wait a minute, wait a minute. You brothers and sisters have never seen Jesus. You've never looked into his face. You've 
You've never seen those eyes, that smile. You've never beheld him yourselves. He remains unseen by you even now. Of course, Peter himself was an eyewitness to the person of Jesus. He lived with Jesus. He, he walked with Jesus. He ate and talked with Jesus every day for roughly three and a half years. And even more significant than that, Jesus appeared many times to Peter after the resurrection. How amazing would that have been to see with these physical eyes the risen Lord Jesus, the nail prints in his hands, the scars on his brow, the wound in his side. Other than Jesus' own family growing up, nobody had more what we could call eye time or face-to-face time with Jesus than Peter did. He had seen Jesus. None of these Christians that he's writing to ever have. And yet they're suffering hard for Jesus. And so Peter takes a moment here near the front end of his letter to authentically and genuinely affirm these sight unseen followers of Jesus. Verses 8 and 9 are, are beautiful for their simplicity. Here there's no instruction being offered. There's no points to jot down or advice to take to heart. Peter's just going to take off his, his apostle instructor hat and he's going to put on his, his cheerleader sweatshirt for two verses. Because these verses are simply going to be a word of well done. Encouragement to these ancient exiles and by extension to us modern exiles as well. And how does it sound? How does it go? Well, it sounds like this, verses 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What a beautiful portion of God's word. I would suggest if you are into memorizing scripture, and I hope you are, that this might make your list of passages to be memorized. I need to do these two verses. Now, I don't know a lot about the life of Napoleon Bonaparte. I know even less about his spiritual life, but I have read about some of his military life. On one occasion, he writes about what was for him a a puzzling conundrum. He recounts how on the battlefield, his own soldiers fight vigorously with the deepest devotion, but only as long as they can see him. When he's out of view, he observes that his soldiers' courage begins to flag. Uh, They give up ground. Sometimes they even turn and run because they can't see him. Unlike, he said, and I quote, those thousands upon thousands of Christian soldiers scattered across the world as followers of the Christ, though they have never seen nor can see him, they are devoted him to him with an undying and passionate zeal. End of quote. Napoleon marveled at this. His own soldiers will run unless they can see him. The soldiers of Jesus, 
They don't run, and they can't see him. Napoleon marveled at that. Peter applauds that. On your note page, Jesus unseen yet deeply loved, unseen yet resolutely believed, unseen yet exuberantly celebrated. Brother, sister, would the Holy Spirit, through Peter's pen, be applauding you with these words this morning, applauding me with verses 8 and 9? Do verses 8 and 9 represent us? Are we in this commendation? That might be a question we would ask. Would unchurched Idlewild, your unchurched friends, know this about you by the way that you live and by the way that you talk and the way that you work and the way that you move in your community, that Jesus is deeply loved by you, that he is resolutely believed by you, and that he is exuberantly celebrated by you? Would they know that? Would they know that? Let's think about each of these three in turn for just a moment. Jesus, unseen yet Deeply loved. Though you have not seen him, you love him. For us, seeing and loving kind of go together. Rarely do people ever talk about loving someone that they've never actually seen or met. About as close as we might get to that phenomenon on earth is when a When a married couple are having a baby and the wife is late in her pregnancy and her tummy's way out there and the baby's kicking all the time and you can even see that kicking on her tummy and and dad gets down by his wife's tummy and he talks to the baby in the womb. And if you're a parent, you've done this. You know this drill, dads especially. Hey, hey there, little one. It's me. It's daddy. You know my voice, don't you? Have you enjoyed gymnastics class today? Tumbling and turning in there? You enjoyed yourself? Mommy and I are going to see you real soon. I love you. We love you. Yeah? Now that's real love. That's real love for an unseen person. But that's quite a rare context doesn't happen all that often to love someone that you've never seen. People talk about love at first sight. But have you ever heard the expression love at no sight? I've never heard that one. Love at no sight. Typically, we love what we can see. But the love that Peter describes here is a love at no sight. And not just love, but deep, deep love. Peter uses the New Testament's favorite word for love. It's the kind of love that God loves with. Do you know what that Greek word is for love? What is it? It's agape. That's right, agape love. We've talked about this kind of love many, many times. It's distinct from sensual love or or emotional love or brotherly love. This is the highest kind or form of love that there is. It's a love of the will. And it's defined as self-giving, self-sacrificing love for the good and joy of another. It's a verb. It's an action word. Agape love is what God 
the Father has lavished on us in sending his own son, Jesus, to live, die, rise, and ultimately save us. Do you remember Romans 5.8? Do you know these words? Suppose we could read them right off the screen. It would be the middle, the middle passage there. Let's do it together as a church. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Guess what word that is there in love, for love in verse 8? It is the word agape. Absolutely. How about, how about the kind of love that Jesus has shown us by dying for our sins? John 15, 13. Jesus, only hours from the cross. What does he say? He says, greater agape, greater love has no one than this than had he lay down his life, sacrifice for his friends. The deepest kind of love is a self-giving for the good of another kind of love. But here in verse 8, Peter's not speaking about God's love for us, but rather our love for Jesus. And he places this verb in the present tense as an expression of the will, constantly, continually loving Jesus, present tense, yet doing so without ever seeing him with our eyes. Though you've not seen him, you are continually Loving him. The love that saving faith creates in us is a genuine love for a savior who has agape us, but we've never seen him. We've never seen him. First John 4.19 says, we love because he what? He first loved us. He first agape us. I think Clint ended his prayer with that just a few moments ago. We love Jesus in response to the love that he loved us with first. And honestly, is this not at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian? What is a Christian? What is a Christian? It's someone who continually loves Jesus from the will with their whole being in response to being first loved by Jesus from the cross. Which is why Jesus, when asked, what is the first and greatest commandment that God gave to us? He says in Mark chapter 12, verse 30, well, it's, the, it's to love the Lord your God with what? All of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love him with your whole being. I'm not sure there's a better way to describe the essential expression of a life transformed by faith in Jesus. It's a life that loves him continually. And hear what Paul said in the very last verse of Ephesians, chapter 6, verse 24. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love. What's the next word? Incorruptible. Peter's applauding that very thing in the lives of these persecuted Christians in Asia Minor. Theirs is an incorruptible love. And and what exactly does an incorruptible love look like, we might ask? Well, honestly, church family, it looks an awful lot like obedience to everything that God says in his word. And we say that because that's what Jesus says. John chapter 14, again, the night before Jesus goes to the cross, verse 15, if you love me, you will 
you'll keep my commandments. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he's the one who loves me. Verse 24, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. In other words, Jesus linked loving him with obeying him, loving him with keeping his commands. Peter links the love of the Asia Minor believers to obeying Jesus, even to the point of suffering and being persecuted in fiery trial for his sake. Theirs was a real love. And so as a Christian... As a Christian, what is a Christian? Well, it's one who loves Jesus, loves him deeply, loves him from the will, gladly gives themselves for his sake, his joy, his glory. Peter says, way to go, Asia Minor Christians. Though you have not seen him, you are continually loving him. Would the Holy Spirit be commending you and me with these words? today only you can answer that question only you know nobody else knows that but you and then peter says though you do not now see him you believe in him jesus unseen yet resolutely believed resolutely trusted now this part of the verse is also set by peter in the present tense just like love was a moment ago you don't now see jesus but you believe in him now. What a great commendation. Church family, let me ask you, does this part of verse 8 remind you of anyone in the Bible who perhaps is best remembered for refusing to believe in Jesus unless they could see him? Does this remind you of anybody? Thomas. Sure, Thomas. Jesus' disciple, Thomas, do you, do you recall his story? Do you know his story? In, in John chapter 20, on the first Easter Sunday, in the evening, Jesus, risen from the dead, appears to his disciples in a locked room as they are hiding in fear from the Jewish religious leaders. They're expecting that they're about to experience the same fate that they, they saw Jesus experience. And so they're hiding, and everybody's in this room except Thomas. Well, later, Thomas rejoins the others, and Jesus isn't there in the moment, and they say, Thomas, Thomas, we've seen the Lord. We've seen the risen Jesus. He's alive. And Thomas skeptically replies, John 20, verse 25, unless I, what's the next word, church? Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger in the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. I mean, Thomas is the poster child for all skeptics, all doubters, those who refuse to believe something that cannot empirically be put to the test with their own eyes. Other people's testimony about Jesus, even the claims of God's word itself, to Jesus' deity, his supernatural life, his sacrificial death, his death-defeating resurrection. That's not enough. I've got I've to see. I've got to see with my eyes before I can believe. Verse 26, John chapter 20. 
Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came, and he stood among them, and he said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? You've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, who is Jesus describing in verse 29 at the end of that verse? Who's he describing? Oh, he's describing us for sure. In fact, he's describing all who have believed in him, though they have never seen him. And that would be describing 99.9999999% of all Christians who have ever lived, right? Because we've not seen him. He's describing Old Testament saints like Abraham and Moses and David. They didn't see Jesus. He's thinking about Christians living in the year 1000 in Europe. He's thinking about uh, Christians living in Africa in 1750. He's thinking about you and me living in Idlewild in 2018. He's thinking of every person who does not need to have that must-see requirement that Thomas placed upon his faith. And he says, these are the blessed Because they are believing without seeing and their believing saves. It leads them to eternal life. They're the blessed. And here we land, church family, on a central truth about the kind of believing that saves us. Christian faith possesses a kind of seeing that does not involve our physical eyes. Faith has its own eyes, and these eyes aren't something that we can grow or that we can make come into being. God has to give us these eyes. Would you agree with that? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 makes this clear. For by grace you have been saved through faith, through believing, and this is not your own doing. It's what? It's a gift of God. Eyes to see with, faith eyes to see with. That's a gift from God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Now, faith is not blind and Christianity is not irrational or anti-intellectual. Christians don't make a a blind leap into into the spiritual unknown. There's enough evidence so that, that my faith can be reasoned and intelligent, but there's not enough earthly evidence for saving faith to simply be reasoned into with my physical eyes. I need spiritual eyes, and only God can give those to me. The kind of believing in Jesus that saves me is when I, with with these faith eyes, am able to see that the life of Jesus and my life are inseparably connected. I can't be without him. I need him. I see that the claims of the Bible concerning who Jesus is and what he did for sinners is true. I see that with my faith eyes. I believe that God really did come to earth. He really did die to pay a sin debt that I owed him but could never pay myself. And to prove he had the power to deliver me from that earthly, from from an eternal death, he rose from the dead. I see that 
with my faith eyes. They confirm to my heart and to my mind that the claims of Jesus are true. Faith is embracing the claims of Christianity by embracing the Christ of Christianity. I see that I have assurance of sins forgiven through faith in Jesus. I see the unseen Jesus and I believe. The writer of Hebrews puts it like this. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of what, church? Things not seen. Not seen with physical eyes. This assurance comes to us as part of those faith eyes that God gives us in Ephesians 2.8. This is why the Apostle Paul can say so confidently, we walk by what, church? We live by faith, not by faith. Second Corinthians five, seven. And this is why Peter says, way to go, Asia Minor Christians, though you do not now see him, you believe in him now. Way to go. Would the Holy Spirit be commending you and me with these words? A deep love for Jesus and a resolute belief in his saving work. Where do you suppose that naturally leads? Well, that leads to rejoicing. Jesus, unseen, yet exuberantly celebrated. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Here Peter describes the Christian's experience at its very best and its highest expression. Our faith sees the unseen beauty of Jesus, unseen with earthly eyes, but brilliantly seen with faith eyes, sees all of the wonderful gains and of, of loving and believing in him. And this produces a, a, a joy that just cannot be contained. Rejoicing that is, well, inexpressible and full of glory. Now, if you were with us last time, Last Sunday, we took note of how Peter chose in verse 6. He chose a word for rejoice back in that verse that is actually an amplified version of the normal Greek word for rejoice that we read in other places in the Bible. And we said that we need to think of this word rejoice as rejoicing that is on steroids. Remember that? Rejoicing on steroids because that's what Peter is trying to communicate. Well, he uses that exact same word that he used in verse 6. He uses it again here in verse 8, and he puts it in the present tense. And I said we could actually translate this word, be constantly jubilant, be exuberantly glad all of the time. Only Peter brings even more clarity by adding to this rejoicing saying, it's inexpressible. It's full of glory. Peter is saying to these first century suffering Christians, you love Jesus, you believe in him, though you've never seen him. And this compels you to want to shout out with great joy. But when you try, nothing comes out. 
its inexpressible joy. That's a celebration of the soul that has no words. Now, what could possibly produce that kind of speechless ecstasy? What could possibly do that, church? What could lead these Christians to such a place of rejoicing? Well, we don't have to wonder because Peter tells us in verse 9, you are obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What produces this, this, this kind of joy? Salvation, right? Salvation, the salvation of our souls. Now, notice that Peter's not looking at the future here. He doesn't say you will obtain salvation. Again, as it has been three times before in verse 8, this is something that's present tense, something right now. We could literally translate verse 9 this way. You are presently receiving for yourselves the result of loving and believing in Jesus, nothing less than the salvation of your souls. Present tense. Now, Peter uses soul here to refer to the whole person who we are materially and spiritually, who we are physically, who we are spiritually, the whole enchilada, the whole us. And inexpressible joy is ours as we ponder what the end result of our faith in Jesus is. It's an ongoing, never-ending salvation, a deliverance of our entire being. And it causes us to rejoice. But deliverance from what? What am I being delivered from that causes me to rejoice like that? Well, it's nothing less than being delivered from the guilt, the condemnation, and the separation from God that results in a sinner's life because of sin, right? That's what we're celebrating. That's what we rejoice over. How about about Romans 6, verse 22? But now, present tense, that you have been, past tense, set free from sin through faith in the Lord Jesus, and have become, present tense, slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification, and its end is what, church? It's eternal life. You have been set free from sin. You've been delivered. This is not a a future spiritual reality for you. We are delivered. We are freed from the power of sin. We are saved from God's judgment upon sin, and it's right now. We have a constant present tense salvation as you have it there on your note page. And that's what Peter is cheering about in verse 9. Think about Romans 8 verse 1. Puts it like this. There is therefore, what's the next word church? Now there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not in the future, right now. Condemnation, that's a legal term. Comes right out of the courtroom in Paul's day. Paul is saying, Holy Spirit inspired, that in the court of heaven there is no sentence of judgment hanging over the head of one who loves and believes in Jesus as Lord and Savior. The justice of God has been satisfied by the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, and it is right now. And it's to be celebrated. Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. For he, God, has rescued us, past tense, from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we, what's the next word? Have, present tense, redemption, 
in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We are obtaining the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls, producing joy inexpressible and full of glory. Who here would not want to experience that? You know, as I pondered these truths out of these verses, my my thoughts gravitated to a wonderful, godly woman known to many of us. Her name was Mabel Lynn. And I say was because Mabel recently went home to be with the Lord just short of her 96th birthday. And if we could interview Mabel right now and ask her, what is it like in heaven? What might she say? What might she say? Knowing Mabel, right? Oh, IBC. I am rejoicing with joy inexpressible, filled with glory. And we would ask her, why would you say that, Mabel? Oh, because I see him. I see Jesus. I see him not with my faith eyes anymore. I see him with these eyes. For nearly nine decades, I saw him with faith eyes, but now I see him. I have I have talked with him. We've walked together. He told me how much he loves me, and he told me that everything that he has is mine. I've known some great joys on earth, IBC, but I've never known joy like this. I can't even begin to describe it to you. It's inexpressible and full of glory. Psalm 1611, in your presence there is what? Fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What an encouragement. It never hurts to be cheered up, and it never hurts to be cheered on, does it? And that's what Peter has done here for these Asia Minor Christians. And I hope that's what he has done for you today because because what is true for these first century exiles in, in Jesus can be said of you and me, brother, sister in Jesus. Joy inexpressible, filled with glory because we love and believe in Jesus. So two thoughts as we close. If you have sat here through this study today, and you might be thinking to yourself, you know, I, I really don't have a clue what it would be like to, to know in the deepest part of who I am that I am right with God and, right with, and God is right with me. I don't know what that experience is about yet. I have never experienced a joy inexpressible in my soul because my sin debt has been paid by another and I am forgiven. I don't know that experience. I've always demanded that I be able to see with my physical eyes whatever I would love or trust. 
That's the way it's been right up to this moment. So if this is you this morning, I, I dare you. Yeah, I'll, I'll say that. I dare you to ask God to give you faith eyes. I dare you. Tell him that you don't have those kinds of eyes and that you know only he can give them to you. Ask him for faith eyes, eyes that will enable you to see Jesus hanging on a cross for you, dying for every sin that you've ever committed or ever will commit. Ask him for faith eyes to be able to see Jesus. With those eyes of faith, you will see Jesus. Because that's what those eyes are made for. You will see Jesus. You will believe. And you will love him. And you will experience that joy of soul that has no words. So ask him. In fact, you have no reason not to ask him unless you're afraid that he might answer you. The only reason you wouldn't ask him, he just, he would answer you. So if you'd like someone to help you in the process of asking, oh, we would love to be a part of that journey with you. Just, just let us know. We, we'll walk the road with you. Let's ask, let's ask him for faith eyes. Ask God for faith eyes for you together. And, and to those of us who, who do love our unseen Savior and believe in him, though we've never looked upon him, there is a fresh joy waiting for each of us if we will take our faith, our love and our belief out of this room and into the life of somebody in our town. There's a joy waiting for us. And so I would dare you brothers and sisters, as even I would challenge myself. Let's ask God to give each one of us just one soul, just one soul this week that we could have a spiritual conversation with. And when the Holy Spirit gives that person to us, we would tell them that we love Jesus and that we believe in him for our eternal life and for this life as well. And then leave the rest to the Holy Spirit. All we have to do is tell them, I love Jesus and I believe he died for me. And I rejoice. The Holy Spirit will do the rest. Do you believe that? Though you have not seen him, you love him, you believe in him, you have joy inexpressible. (laughs) Let's pray. Let's pray. Oh, what a gift you have given to us today, Heavenly Father, through your word. Thank you for the treasure that is verses 8 and 9 of this chapter, and thank you for letting us explore it together. Let these not just be words that we hear, but let them be words that we act upon. For that one in this room who might need those spiritual eyes, Lord, those faith eyes, may they have the courage to ask you for them. 
May we be ready to walk that road with such a person. And Lord, for the rest of us, there is a soul here in Idlewild waiting for us this week. May we not miss the moment to share you. All glory be to you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Let's stand together. We've got a great song to wrap up with here.